Well, I'm going to ask you to indulge me this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a breath and hold it. Hold your breath until I say, breathe now. Okay? Everybody ready? Take a breath. Hold it. While you're holding your breath... I want you to think about a time that you got the breath knocked out of you. You got the wind knocked out of you. And that happens when you get pressure in your solar plexus, these nerves right here, and your diaphragm is temporarily paralyzed and you have difficulty breathing. Breathe now. Okay, take a few breaths. Breathe normally. When you get the breath knocked out of you, it usually happens uh, when you fall front or back or maybe in some contact sports or maybe you get punched in the stomach, but I hope that's not happening to you on a regular basis. But when that happens, it's a temporary uh, situation that almost always resolves itself within a minute or two. But many of us in that situation, we panic anyway. We panic because we know at a gut level, a very survival level, that breath equals life and no breath equals no life. And when we cannot breathe, we are snapped into reality that we are not in control. You cannot beg, buy, or steal your next breath. You are dependent on the breath giver for that next dose of oxygen. This morning, we're going to talk about the biblical truth that that breath giver is God. This is the first week in our new series called Given. That's you holding your breath. And today we're talking about uh, the fact that God has given us, not the least of things, is our own existence, our own life, and what do we do with that? The scripture passage that we're going to look at this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 17. And if you brought your Bible, now would be a good time to open up your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you did not bring a Bible with you, we are on the free app called YouVersion. If you click events, it'll take you to that passage. Also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, but you would like one, we have some available at the Welcome Center that we would be glad to give you as a free gift to you. So feel free to stop by there on your way out. So on the Bible timeline that we have talked about before, this passage in Acts falls under the mission word towards the right side of the Bible timeline. The passage involves a man named Paul. And you may remember that Paul was a contemporary of Jesus and the disciples. He lived at the same time. And initially, he was stalwartly opposed to the message of Jesus. But God intervened, and he was transformed, empowered, and launched on the mission of actually spreading the message of Jesus. And that's what he's doing when we pick up in this passage, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Here's a map of the Mediterranean world in the first century, 
And you'll see on the right-hand lower side there the country of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And more in the middle, you see the country of Greece and the city of Athens. The writer of this passage, Luke, says that Paul was distressed because the city of Athens at this time was full of idols. In his article, Athens, City of Idol Worship, the author Oscar Brunier goes on for about 20 pages listing all of the different altars to all of the different gods and goddesses that were present in Athens at that time. They included altars to Ares, Poseidon, Oedipus, Aphrodite, Athena, and the list goes on and on and on. So to say that Athens was full of idols is kind of like saying Manhattan is full of tall buildings. If you took the idols out of Athens, there would be no Athens, right? That is really what makes up the city. Just like if you took all the tall buildings out of Manhattan, it wouldn't be Manhattan, right? So they are everything about the place. And at this time in Athens, certainly Jewish people were a minority, a small minority. Uh, But Paul still tracked them down in their synagogue, met with them in their synagogue, along with the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, So in this passage, they're referred to as God-fearing Greeks. And he taught them and reasoned with them and ministered to them in that context. But at the same time, he was also meeting with people in the marketplace. Gentiles there who had little to no familiarity with Judaism. They knew virtually nothing about what we call the Bible timeline. They were from a completely different orientation, worldview, mindset. Here's how our passage continues in verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Professor Daryl Bach, in his class on the book of Acts, gives us a little more context here. From among these Gentiles Paul was meeting with in the marketplace, Luke names two groups. One is the Epicurean philosophers. The Epicureans were intellectuals, and they sought pleasure and happiness. In contrast, these Stoic philosophers were about suppressing their desires, right? Think of the word Stoicism. They're Stoic. They repress desire, and they're about self-sufficiency and independence. So two groups different from each other, but both of whom criticizing Paul and opposing Paul. And in this translation, uh, their criticism is translated, he's a babbler. What it literally means is a teacher of crumbs, Just crumbs. A person who teaches with little to no substance. And it's quite an insult in this context. You can see in these verses that their real sticking point about Paul's message, their real problem, their real opposition is to the idea of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That idea... Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that is completely radical to them. It's a huge, huge deal. Let's continue on here in verse 19. Then they took him 
and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. The Areopagus in this picture is the rocky hill that's close to us. It's the rocky hill in the foreground. Areopagus means Ares rock. And in Greek mythology, this is where the god Ares was tried for killing Poseidon's son. The Romans, however, had a different name for this place. They called it Mars Hill. They named the place after their god, the Roman god Mars. He's the god of war. And in the background in this picture, you see the Acropolis. Those are the tall buildings in the back, including the Parthenon, which was the temple to the goddess Athena. So the city Athens is named for the goddess Athena. The Areopagus became the site of a Jewish council. This group of people was formal at first, and they judged ideas and they made decisions. By the time Paul gets here to Athens, it's more informal in nature, but it still exists. They still get together and have their debates. So the word Areopagus can refer to that place, or it can refer to that council, that group of people. Notice uh, this phrase in the scripture. They spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So remember, Athens had been the city of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These people love philosophy. They're all about ideas and debate and bantering back and forth about this stuff. Let's continue in verse 22. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So here we get to the heart of Paul's message. He begins by saying, the God, the God, singular, not a slew of gods, one God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. This one God is not limited to a geographic area like a lot of these gods and goddesses were. The god of the sea, the god of this mountain. He is also not limited to one aspect of life, like a lot of these gods and goddesses were. God of fertility, god of war. This god that Paul preaches is god of all. 
His presence and domain is everywhere. And Paul goes on to say, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. In other words, he's saying to the people, you don't make him like you made all these other idols. You don't make him. No, no, he makes you. You don't work to keep him alive. Uh-uh. He keeps you alive. And the bottom line is this. Your life is from God. God gave you life. Your life is from God. This was a countercultural statement at the Areopagus on this day in Athens. And it's a countercultural statement in many places today in 2018. I've been asking my friends this week who live in various places around the world, tell me where you live, the people that you meet, what do they think about the oranges of humans? Where, where did people come from? One of the people I asked this question of were Dan and Lisa Lawrence, our friends who are international workers in Paris, France. And they confirmed to me that most of the French people that they meet would identify as atheists, naturalists, and they believe that completely apart from any sort of God, uh, the Big Bang Theory came to be, an evolution of species to species, completely apart from God, is how you and I got here today. You don't have to go to France to meet someone who has that idea. This is a growing idea in our culture. We may very well have people with us uh, in our building this morning who have this idea. And it's not my intention this morning to give a whole lecture about the relationship between God and science, but I will say this, that God and science are not mutually exclusive. One does not disprove the other. And in fact, many of the sciences were born out of a Christian worldview. They were born out of the Christian thought that a creator God who is faithful and orderly probably created things in an orderly way and we can discover a lot of what those ways are. If you do want to explore more the relationship between God and science, let me just suggest that you go to Right Now Media. Online, go to Right Now Media. If you don't already have your free account, let the church office know. We will get you connected. And check out some of the resources that I have printed on your handout this morning. The handout is in the seat back pocket in front of you. Let's pick up here, verse 26. Verse 26. Paul goes on and he says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he marked out their appointed times in histories and the boundaries of their lands. This was also very countercultural then as well as now. Remember just a few verses back, the philosophers in in verse 18, they're concerned that Paul is teaching about foreign gods, somebody else's gods. Also remember The Greeks named the hill after their god, Ares. The Romans renamed it after their god, Mars. Because in their minds, gods are gods of different peoples. But Paul is saying here 
that not only is there one God for all places, one God for all aspects of life, there is one God for all peoples. And this was radical. And in some places today, it's still radical. Another person, another friend of mine that I asked this week, tell me about what people think where you live, was our friend Miwa Ishiyama-san. She lives in Kumamoto, Japan. And Miwa-san told me uh, that in Japan, also very common to have that naturalistic view, that science apart from God view. But in addition to that, uh, Japanese culture has its own creation story. Thank you very much. And their creation story goes a little bit like this. Among a variety of gods, two gods got together and they stirred up the water in the ocean and they made four drips in the water, creating the four primary islands of Japan and they made the Japanese people. And that's where that creation story ends. It doesn't have any sort of consideration or explanation for any place else in the world or any other people in the world. And if you know very much about Japanese culture and history, that creation story kind of fits the vibe. But this text says, there is one God who made not only all places, but all people. God created all people. Humans are one species and one race. And every single person bears God's image. And therefore, all humans everywhere have equal intrinsic value and worth apart from any other criteria. Furthermore, the text says, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, God marked out the circumstances of your birth. God marked out the circumstances of your birth. Not only did God have a hand in forming your physical body and everything about your physical body, he had a hand in forming all of your abilities, your natural abilities and gifts, and also your limits. God also had his hand in the when and the where of your birth and all of the implications of that. We talk a lot here at Durwood Alliance Church about wanting to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church. Well, God decided that you would be born in this age, not a hundred years ago, not a thousand years ago, but in this age. And God knew exactly how old you would be today when we were having this conversation. God also had a hand in determining the land where you would be born. And in many cases, the land where you were born has something to do with your ethnicity. God marked out the circumstances of your birth. When I was much younger, I uh, went through a season of trying to wrap my brain around and my heart around these really big theological ideas like God's will, God's sovereignty, and human will and free choice and how do all these things work together? I was a young philosopher myself. <laughs> and one of the things I, I used to think about when I was in that season was about children 
who were born outside of the instructions of Scripture. So the the commands of Scripture are pretty straightforward that there is meant to be one man and one woman in a marriage relationship, and sex and therefore children are to be in that circumstance. But we all know that there are many children who are born in a variety of circumstances that don't fit that paradigm. And so I would wonder, what about them? How does that all, if God marks out the circumstances, but that's not, how does that work? And eventually I came to the conclusion that God is just not rattled or thrown off at all by our choices. Even when our choices are outside of his instructions or our choices are to disobey. And he's able to factor all of that in. And none of it changes the fact that God is the one who gives life. And every single child is made by God. Every single child is made in the image of God, is celebrated by God, and is to be celebrated by all of us as well. Your life is from God. Your life is from God. And your life is for God. It's from God and it's for God. Let's pick up in verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. So why did God do all of this? Why does he go to all this trouble of making each human being, of marking out the circumstances of every single birth? And he has been at this for a long time. God did not create humans because he was bored. He did not create humans because he was lonely. He did not create humans because he wanted someone inferior to boss around. He creates humans so that we would seek him and reach out for him and find him. And the finding is likely to happen if we seek and reach out because he is not far away. He wants to be found. He's just waiting for the seek and the reach. God made you to find and follow him. He made you to find and follow him. This is the whole reason we exist. This is the whole reason we have life. Our lives are from God and for God. He made us to find and follow him. And every other reason that people try to use for existing, every other reason we try to use uh, for living will eventually uh, fall apart and not satisfy. It will eventually run out because this is what we're made for. This is what we're made for, to find and follow him. How do we do that? We find him, we follow him when we learn his word and we learn to submit to his word. When we learn to recognize his spirit and recognize his voice when we are learning and living together in community like this together, when we're learning to follow him out in the world in the ways that we love and live and show and tell people about this message. Verse 29. Therefore, 
Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. What I want you to hear in these last few verses of this passage, I want you to hear Paul's urgency. He says, in the past, God overlooked ignorance, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent. Notice that word, now. Also notice the phrase, he has set a day. It's the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Remember, that's a really big deal. Jesus will judge the earth. As I walk alongside people who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, I really try to remember that my role is to show them and tell them this message as the Holy Spirit leads me. But it's not my job to push or to rush or to pressure. They're on their own journey with God, whether they know it or not. And God knows the timing of all the shifts in that journey. But I do pray that at just the right time, God would bring them a sense of urgency that God would bring them at just the right time that recognition that they've come to a crossroads and it's deciding time. That he would give them that now. That he would give them that this is the day. It says now is the time to repent. So the literal meaning is it's time to turn to God or in some cases turn back to God. The message Paul gave was, now's the time to turn back to God. And what we see in these last few verses is that there were three categories of response to this message. Jimmy Scroggins and Steve Wright, in their book, Turning Everyday Conversations into Gospel Conversations, describe the three categories this way. First, there's the red light. The red light. Scripture says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That's the red light. That's the no response. Rejection of the message. Secondly, there's the yellow light. The scripture says, others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. This is the maybe response. This person wants to continue the conversation. It's a yellow light. Caution. (laughs) And thirdly, there's the green light. The green light. Scripture says some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. This is the yes. This is the I'm embracing this. Green light. So red light, yellow light, green light. And so the question is, what is your response 
to the message that your life is from God and for God? What's your response? Maybe you came in this morning already at a green light. You're already a big yes, I'm all in, full steam ahead. If that's you, that's great. I hope this message was affirming to you today and cheers you on to be all in. Maybe this morning you are considering making a green light response for the very first time. If so, that's really exciting. And I want to encourage you to tell God that. And I want to ask you to tell me as well, if you don't mind. We'd love to help you with a green light response. Maybe you're a yellow light response. Like, I'm intrigued, but not quite ready. If that's you this morning, let's continue this conversation. I encourage you to read uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Acts is where we are this morning. It's actually one book in two parts by the same author. Read more about who Jesus is and let's keep talking. And maybe this morning you're at a red light. Maybe for whatever reason you're thinking, no thanks. If that's you this morning, I want you to know we're really glad that you're here. And you are welcome here. And we want to extend our friendship to you and bless you. But I also want to let you know we're going to pray that you're open to God and that you're open to us. And we're going to keep telling you about his word and about our own stories. I want to close the message this morning by showing you a brief video of a couple who decided to give God a green light response. People who have come to grips with the truth that life is from God and for God, that it's all about finding and following him. Now, how that played out for them, what it has meant for their life may be very, very different than what it means for your life. But what I want you to hear is the all in part, all in my whole life. Let's watch this video together. And my name is Karen Peña. And we are from Puerto Rico. And we are missionaries in the Dominican Republic in Punta Cana. We, when we was in college, we were invited to participate in a, in a short-term missionary trip here in Dominican Republic. That mission, missionary trip helped me to realize what God wants me to do for my whole life. I graduated as an electrical engineer and Karen, Karen did more. She did a bachelor's degree in finance and then a master's degree in finance. We started to work in our respective professions. We felt uh, successful in our careers, but not happy at all. When I told Karen that I want to dedicate myself to serving God in missions, it was a, a great surprise that Karen was in accord with me. We felt that we need to, to take the desire that God put us in our heart when we were in college. Before even we complete filling out all the requirements to be a missionary, our district asked us if we were willing to serve as missionary in the Dominican Republic in Punta Cana. Where we were 
announcing our decision in our jobs that we were gonna quit our jobs to do to work as missionaries. The people they really didn't understand what we were doing is what what we think God wants for us. We decided to to move through the direction that God had for our family, and we are here right now in Dominican Republic in Punta Cana serving God with great joy.